The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We've got quarter past. This is our last um, class uh, in this uh, unit. That's why you have a ridiculously long handout here, which we have no chance of getting through all of. So the idea here is that it would be a reference for you. It's really two classes in one. Uh, the unifying theme today is basically our ministry in the, in the world that we're dealing with and, and the hope that we have in the transforming power of the gospel. So that's going to be the unifying theme. The fact that we're in a, in a hostile environment on this topic, we're surrounded by worldview enemies, people who oppose what we believe, uh, and I would say vigorously oppose it, um, and that we have to carry ourselves in a certain way to be able to minister the hope of the gospel. So that's going to be our unifying theme today. We'll get as far into the details of that as we can, but let's start with prayer. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this day, this weekend that we have, long weekend, Memorial Day weekend. We're grateful for the chance we have to, uh, to assemble together Sunday morning and to study your word and to encourage one another and then to gather for corporate worship and sing praise songs to you, Lord. You are so worthy of praise for your grace to us in Christ. You're so worthy of praise for rescuing us from Satan's dark kingdom and giving us a hope and a future and forgiving all of our sins, though you know us intimately and your eyes are so pure and holy. You have not treated us as our sins deserve. It's probably one of the greatest understatements in the Bible. Instead of not treating us as our sins deserve, you've lavishly given us a kingdom and forgiveness and adopted us as your sons and daughters. And you've also given us work of eternal consequence that we have gospel ministry to do. And so I pray that you would strengthen each one of us and help us to be faithful to the work you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I saw something on Twitter this week that really troubled me and challenged me, and uh, I don't know the research behind it, but it was, you know, it was a pie chart, uh, you know what that is, where it shows, you know, 100% and sections of the pie, and it talked about people who go to evangelical churches, church members, who are able to articulate, to say, or answer the question, what is the Great Commission? 65% had no idea, had never heard of it. What? I'm like, I hope that's not FBC. I, ho I hope you guys know what the great, and then, then down other options. Like, I've, I think I've heard of it before. I, I'm not sure, but you know, that kind of thing. Down to like some small wedge, 5% that could say what it was. So I just thought it'd be good to just go over that in our first minute or two. <laughs> okay. Maybe you don't know the phrase. You hadn't heard the phrase, but you're, oh, when I say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that a hundred times. So maybe that was the problem. I don't know. Great Commission is not a phrase found in the Bible. It's not important that you know that phrase, but it's certainly important that you know what it contains. Can anyone tell me what it is? What do I mean by the Great Commission? Thank you, Herb. Awesome. Preach the gospel. All right, uh, there are five versions of it, one at the end of each of the four gospels and one in the book of Acts. They're all slightly different from each other. If you, if you didn't get it this way, we'll come at it this angle. I mean, there's zero doubt that this is like Jesus' final words to us. Uh, Great Commission generally linked prim primarily to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. You have heard that before, haven't you? Please nod. Encourage me as your pastor. All right, good. So you heard that before, that we are responsible uh, under the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are responsible to be instruments of the gospel. It was the whole sermon I preached last week. And, and we should be filled with good hope about that. It's easy to become hopeless because so few of the people we talk to respond favorably. So few, percentage-wise. But there is a cumulative effect to the faithful preaching of the gospel around the world, in every locality, and across 20-plus centuries of church history. There's a cumulative effect of all this. And when the veil is pulled back and we see what has been achieved by the Holy Spirit through the church, we will be awestruck. It's going to be amazing to see that multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Because keep in mind, Jesus doesn't lose anyone, ever. So once they've crossed over, they're, they're his forever. And that's encouraging, isn't it? So we want to start here in Romans 1.16. Someone read it. This is uh, one of many verses I could use as a doorway into our ministry uh, of truth in this hostile age. Someone read that for us. Okay. Power. It is a powerful thing for a sinner to be saved. It takes power. All right. Uh, I, I, there are a lot of analogies, but I like the idea of the Saturn V rocket and the, the idea of lifting off and escape velocity and the pull of, of Earth's gravity. If you don't o- o- overcome that, you won't get out into orbit. You won't go to the moon. And so it, it's, there's a power level below that that's not going to get done. And so it is spiritually. It is a powerful thing for Jesus to rescue a, a, a sinner dead in their transgressions and sins from Satan's kingdom. He doesn't give up his possessions easily. It's a powerful thing. And we are involved in that. We ourselves, if we're born again, we have been powerfully rescued. The power of the gospel has worked on us. And now we get to see the gospel be powerful in other people's lives. And that's really encouraging. Another key verse for me has to do with our own attitude, let's say, or demeanor as we minister the gospel. If someone could read this for us, 1 Peter 3.15. So much in that verse. It's a great verse. You begin by sanctifying Christ in your heart as Lord. The reason we do evangelism is because Christ our Lord has commanded us to do it. And for us to set him apart, set him above, to, to effectively in our hearts fall at his feet in worship, and recognize he is God, he's our king, he's our commander, whatever he wants, we should do, right? So we sanctify him as Lord, and not just he's not just our Lord, he is the Lord, he is the only Lord. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one gospel for the whole world. So as we're dealing with people who are in the grips of the sin of homosexuality, Jesus is the only Lord there is. And for them to cross over from darkness to to light is to be rescued from one kingdom and brought into another kingdom. So we're setting him him apart in our hearts as Lord. And then it says, always be prepared. Isn't that great? What does that word mean to you? Always be prepared. Always. Every moment. moment Ready for what? That's true. But here we're talking about evangelism. So always prepared for what? Sharing the gospel. Be ready to be evangelistic. You never know when that opportunity is going to come. Always be prepared to give an answer. Now, that's a little bit interesting. It's like, oh, God, bring those. I'm ready for those. I wish that someone would come and say, would you please tell me to give you a reason for the hope that you have? Um, I think we're all like, I'm ready to knock that one out of the park. But I don't know why we don't ask for it. The Lord knows our weakness. Say, God, I'm not an awesome evangelist. If you would just give me an easy one today. 
I'll try not to mess it up. But give me a chance to say something to somebody. But look what they say. Give me a reason why you are so hopeful. So that would imply what before they ask? You're hopeful. <laughs> okay. And not just hopeful, but evidently hopeful. Obviously hopeful. Hopeful in ways they aren't. So that would imply possibly some severe trials in your life to which you respond differently than they would. And you're like, wow, I don't want to go through that. It's like, well, that could be exactly what it would take for you to be evangelistically fruitful, that you go through a trial and they're going through a trial, but you're going through it differently than they are. And you're so filled with hope. So give a reason for that. And what is hope? Hope is a buoyant, strong feeling in your heart. It's a feeling, a sense that the future is bright. You're looking forward to the future based on the promise of God. Christian hope, God has promised that your future is bright. Your future from now until you die or the Lord returns is bright. It's a good life, worth living. Do you believe that? The, your life here on earth should mean, will mean fruitful labor, Paul says. Fruitful labor for me. And then when I die, then things really get good. <laughs> if you can live like that, openly, obviously, every day, it's, it's reasonable to expect somebody's going to come and say, would you please give me a reason for the hope that you have? Now, part of it with this is, is we are filled with hope because we've been delivered from sin, and they haven't. And they want to know how they can be rescued too. So give uh, an answer or a reason to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. There's, ours is a reasonable faith. There are reasons why we're so hopeful. It's because the Bible has convinced us that it's a unique book. It's God's word. The, the fulfilled prophecies show us the supernatural nature of the Bible. The fact that it just keeps telling us the truth. It's just that we're, we're convinced that the Bible's the word of God. And in that, there are many reasons of why our future is bright. Many reasons why, you know, we're excited that Jesus is Lord and that he's going to care for us. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's going to give us what we need. He's going to protect us from Satan and, and all of that. And they're like, they don't know any of this because they're without hope and without God in the world. So give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. Now, why would that phrase be specifically interesting to us in this study? We're talking about perhaps ministering to homosexual people, males and females, transgender people, people who honestly, their minds and souls have been messed up by sin. Why would gentleness and respect, which is commanded here by the Lord, it's not an option. Why is this going to be vital for us? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's phrases like gay bashing or there's uh, the Laramie Project, which talks about Matthew Shepard, who I think was murdered, um, you know, ostensibly it seemed because he was a homosexual. They're well aware of those stories and probably expect some of that from Christians, expect some of that demeanor and that treatment. That's, that's a, an element of what they call homophobia, uh, is that you're going to irrationally lash out at somebody and attack them. All right, why would all of that be completely unseemly for a Christian who's been rescued by grace? I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense for us to be harsh and arrogant toward a sinner who's trapped in this sin. Yeah, we, f we forget how much that we, we act like, oh, I would never do that. Um, and, and that kind of thing. There's just an arrogance there, and that's something. All right, so 1 Peter 3.15. This is, this is a wonderful study of two verses, and we're in the top 10% of the first page of a 17-page handout. So if we had no chance when we began, we have even less of no chance now, but let's just keep going. 1 Corinthians 6 is a very important passage concerning the topic and our understanding of homosexuality that is so very different from the world's. Let me just lay my cards on the table. The phrase, such were some of you, implies you can stop being a homosexual. 
You were one, now you're not. Why, how does that fly in the face of secular research and convictions on this topic? They have no choice. It's genetic. It's who they are. They're born that way. And actually, they're going to keep going. Psychological damage is done to yourself if you deny who you are. If you don't be who you are, you're going to be hurting yourself. And so there are stories of even depression, suicide, that kind of thing, at people who are swimming against the stream of what they are. So the counselors are going to be feeding them poison. The secular counselors are going to be feeding them poison. We believe that you can stop being a homosexual entirely, by the, but only, I would say, only by the power of the gospel. Now understand, in 1 Corinthians 6, there's a list of more things than just homosexuality, and that's the problem. We forget such were some of you applies to all of us. And it's very important. Let's go ahead and read it, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's a pretty extensive list. And if you don't find yourself in that list, you don't know what you're looking for. What would be a sin that I would say every human being on the face of the earth struggles with on that list? What was that? Adultery? Idolatry. idolatry. Yes, idolatry. Great. What's another one? There's actually more than one. Covetousness. Covetousness. Jay, what does that mean? That's wanting something that you're not supposed to have. Right. Something that, that, you, or you, that you don't have. Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's car, your neighbor's wife, or you know, vice versa. You know, all of that. Coveting. And that's, I think, exactly why Paul zeroes in on coveting in Romans 7. Because that's something every human being struggles with. And I think it's strongly linked with idolatry as well. Uh, idolatry is just putting an undue value on some created thing. Uh, again, you, why would it be very helpful for us to find ourselves on that list in the phrase, such were some of you? We're not above them. We're not actually intrinsically any different than them. And we have all been rescued from some corrupted mental, spiritual state by the gospel. Thank God we're not going to spend eternity idolaters or adulterers or thieves or swindlers or homosexual or effeminate or the other things on the list. We will be so radically transformed by the grace of God. I actually think one of the whole points is that we get rescued out of these things and we realize when we get to heaven that all of the glory goes to God. We could never have saved ourselves from these. He's, he's saving us in such a way that we get humbled in the process. That's why I think heavenly memory is so important. We will remember and feel no shame and all glory to God because of what we were rescued out of. To him be the glory. All right, now, this is a warning. 1 Corinthians 6 is a warning. Do not be deceived. If you were never rescued from any of these states, what will happen? You will go to hell, or putting it in the phrase here, what will not happen is you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? So if you are not rescued from this state, then you will be condemned. And why does he say, do not be deceived about that? What does that imply? Yeah, I think part of Satan's great ministry is to lie to people who are in danger of hell and tell them that they're not. Tell them that they're fine as they are. And lie to people about these sin states. We cannot do that. We can't ourselves be deceived. 
So this has sanctifying power too. So you're like, well, thank God I'm done with idolatry. Oh, really? Thank God I don't have to worry about covetousness anymore. Well, we know that this is an ongoing battle and our salvation's not finished yet. We're, we're, we're saved in stages. And so to read that list, we have to not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Say, oh God, finish saving me. Oh God, would, would you help me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Help me to fear adultery in the way that Jesus described it. Help me to fear fornication. That's on the list, fornication. All right? Help me to fear the sins of the soul that are listed here and in that way put sin to death by the Spirit and live the holy life that without which we will not see the Lord. So there's, don't be deceived, he says. All right, self-deception. Then he talks about homosexuality in this passage, among other things. And there are some technical terms here that Paul uses. First, you got pornoi, which is where we get fornicators in the New American Standard, the promiscuous or adulterers. You can see the, the link over in English of pornography, uh, which is the portrayal of porneia. That's what pornography is. So the idea is that, that sexual immorality is being portrayed. Then malakoi is an interesting phrase, soft ones, literally. Uh, Robert Gagnon said, basically, effeminate males who play the role of females in the relationship. So you know what we're talking about. You can see somebody out in life who's clearly a male, there's no doubt about it, but acting like a female. There are mannerisms, a way of speaking, perhaps even some, some way of dress, uh, things like that. So we know exactly this was going on back then. All right. Those people, the, uh, the Malakoi, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They have to be healed out of that. All right. And then Arsenokoitai, literally bedders of males, Robert Gagnon said, males who take other males to bed sexually. It's a new word, apparently not used in the Koine Greek, except by Paul. Here, he made it up. But it comes from Leviticus 18.22, uh, we think. Do not lie with a man, arsenos, as one lies, koitain, with a woman. So he put that two together. So the idea is, because it's written from a masculine point of view. Obviously, a, uh, a, a woman can lie with a man if that man's her husband. So this is from the male point of view. Do not lie with a male as one lies with a, with a woman. If that's who you are and you're not healed out of it, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's, it's very clear. Christians have to take this warning then as a loving gift of God's grace, knowing ahead of time what he is planning to weed out of his kingdom, what he is planning on not permitting to enter the kingdom of God. We are graciously warned in Scripture ahead of time concerning this. No one will be able to say, gee, no, I didn't know and flee to Christ. Now, the key statement here for us is, such were some of you. People can be and are being saved from each of these sinful lifestyles. So let's just, you know, get it off of the topic of homosexuality. Let's say fornicator. Let's say you've got an unmarried person who's leading a promiscuous life. And you meet them, they're a co-worker, and they don't think anything of it. That's the post-60s sexual revolution. They're like, I don't think they even think it's a sin. It's like, I'm not married. It's like, yeah, but you're fornicating. I mean, you're sleeping, with, you're sleeping with people, and that's a sin. It's like, well, I don't even know if our culture is identified as a sin anymore. So again, workplace evangelism, you're talking to this 23-year-old person, male or female, and, and they're not even homosexual. They're just, you know, they're, they're sleeping with people of the opposite sex, etc. And you want to lead them to Christ. Is, is this topic going to come up, do you think, in the process of you seeking to lead them to Christ? Should it? Let's say they bring it up. What should we do? How would the phrase, do not be deceived, these people cannot inherit the kingdom of God, how would that come into our conversation with them? 
Okay. And again, I'm not saying that's the first thing you should say. I'm saying, let's say you have lots of conversations about the gospel, and then things start getting really practical. So they, well, we should warn them about it. We're all in the same boat. We're all in this list somewhere. We need to be rescued. You know, we want to tell people the truth. We are there to tell them the truth. This is why it is hard to be a witness. And I think we know it. But if we really tell, the peop- tell people the truth, I mean, Martin Luther put it to the nth degree. That's what Martin Luther did. He said, you should always preach in such a way that when you get done, people will either hate you or hate their sins. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. I, I was hoping to be a preacher, and now I'm not sure that's what I want to do. But you know, you know why he said that? Because if you tell people the truth at some point, I actually think this was the fundamental reason people hated Jesus without a cause. And he said that. He said, because I testify to the world that its deeds are evil. People don't want to hear that. But they have to hear it or else they're not going to seek a savior. All right, such were some of you. This is a hugely important statement of hope for those trapped in any sinful lifestyle. But let's zero in on the topic of the day of of this class. Homosexuals can be delivered from that lifestyle in every respect. Not only can be, they must be if they're going to go to heaven. And so that is our culture, our, our context, heresy. For, I mean, that is absolutely contradictory to what they're being taught. But their teachings, I think, is coming straight from the devil, the deceiver of souls. I think he's the one that's telling people that it's genetic, it's physiological, it's who you are woven into the fabric of your being. You're going to do yourself psychological damage if you think differently. He's telling those lies so that he can lock people up in that sinful lifestyle and send them to hell. Our job is to tell the truth. All right, now look at the rest of it, 611. Uh, someone read that, 1 Corinthians 611. Isn't that a thrilling verse? I mean, that is so encouraging. Topher, what, is, what encourages you about that, that verse? I love the word washing. There's lots of washing ver, uh, uh, verses in the New Testament, like uh, in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They will have the right to enter the gates of the city. All right? Or Titus uh, 3 says that we were washed by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What does that mean? Remember the foot washing? He said, you will. He said to him, I love Peter. He's like, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? I I always feel like Peter's like about seventh or eighth at that point. He's already, Jesus already washed seven or eight feet. And then he comes to Peter and he's like, whoa, uh, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? He's like, well, no, I'm going to skip you. (laughs) That's Peter being Peter. And Jesus said, what I'm doing, you do not understand, but later you will. And then Peter answered Jesus. This is Peter. You will never wash my feet. That's Peter saying that to Jesus. You don't talk like that to Jesus. It's one of the four times uh, Peter said to Jesus, never. All right? It's a really interesting study. Peter's a pretty strong-willed character. Interesting guy. He thought he knew better. All right? But Jesus said this very strong statement, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What does that mean? He's the only one that can, <clears throat> can wash. But he says, unless I do, you have no part with me. What does that mean? Unless you submit to me, unless you let me clean you up, I can't take you in those pig-smelling clothes into my perfectly pure throne room. I've got to clean you up. I've got to wash you. I've got to hose you down, okay? Because you can't come like that into heaven. And we believe that the blood of Jesus has power to wash. And notice the past tense. You were washed. And Jesus said to him, And to all of them, you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
So it's a once for all cleaning in justification. Then you have to wash your feet. That's that ongoing cleansing that comes in sanctification, different matter. You were washed, you were sanctified. Again, that, that once for all sanctification, different than progressive sanctification, but you were set apart as God's holy possession. You belong to God now. You're holy. You're, you've been rescued out of that Corinthian lifestyle. And you're holy now. And you were justified. Once for all, you were declared not guilty of all of your sins. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's awesome. So all of these things happens to people, sinners, in those various categories if they genuinely believe in Jesus. All right? Now let's talk about same-sex attraction, which we've mentioned many times. And I'm going to do my best to walk through it. I don't know that it's going to be 100% satisfying to all of you, but this is the best that I can do as we talk about it. Um, based on assertions made by converted homosexuals, former, former homosexuals, who fit into the 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 passage, they have been rescued. But they said, you know, that they struggled with these feelings long before they ever acted out on them, and they were trying to deal with that. A lot of our discussion in this class has been, what about their feelings afterward? I'm going to do the best I can to address that. You know, there, some people say, look, if you're in the category, such were some of you, you would think that that would end forever, any of those, those wicked lusts. And that's the thing that we have to walk through. Uh, some of it relates now to uh, something we've already touched on briefly. Is there a physiological basis of homosexuality? The so-called gay gene or other aspects of it. There's all kinds of research going into this kind of thing. We have an instinct as Christians that one of the reasons for the research is to exonerate people from guilt. They, they, they are not guilty because they're just acting out on what for them is natural. So we know that that cannot be the case, all right? If, if you find any behavior pattern on a sin list in which we're told if this is what you are or do, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, there is guilt in each one of those lifestyle patterns. And you have to take responsibility for that. And more than that, we would say you have to repent out of that by the grace of God. So it doesn't matter. Honestly, I can tell you, I'm just going to punt on it, and I think they ought to stop doing research on it. It's not going to help. I find it interesting that there's research on this and that there's not genetic research on other sin patterns. Like, is there a lazy gene? All right. <laughs> is there a messy room gene? Is there a late to appointments gene? You know, all joking aside, I actually believe that there is a physiological base of all of our sin patterns. I think that our flesh is physical. I mean, I'm saying nothing here. <laughs> There's a physicality to our sins. And not only that, but we are trainable in patterns. You do something again and again, you're going to develop a habit, good or bad. We develop habits. And if those habits are sinful, then, then they have to be repented from. But the fact that you still have a pull toward that doesn't exonerate you. So uh, even if there might be some kind of physiological base, in the end, so what? All that does is tell you you're going to have a real hard fight. It's going to be hard for you, but you need to fight. So I have this list. Genetic basis doesn't free us from responsibility. Genetic-based aggressive tendencies may breed violent criminal attacks, but society doesn't condone it or embrace it. Genetic-based lethargic tendencies may breed laziness and poor workmanship, but we don't condone it or embrace it. 
There may be genetic uh, basis toward alcoholic excesses that maybe uh, some people can drink a certain amount and never get drunk or become an alcoholic. Other people, some people even think that's true in that case, that there are genetic bases of alcoholism. Uh, there are, some would say, genetic bases of gloom or depression. There might be even chemical aspects to that. And then in other, like heterosexual sins, like we could, we could say there might be a genetic or even physiological base to, to uh, internet pornography of a heterosexual kind. But again, what we're, we're, not, we're, what we're saying is that that doesn't exonerate anybody or free you up from the fight or free you up from the passage we just studied. That if you are characterized by this, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So this is pretty much in the end a punt on the gay gene thing. Does that make sense? I don't know. I think it's going to be, it'd be very hard to isolate it. I don't know how you unravel a human being from how they were raised, what their experiences were, something that might have happened to them when they were sick. How do you unravel all that and zero in on just the genetics? It'd be very hard to do. And I'm saying that the entire process or the entire project is really not worth pursuing. For me, I want to just trust the scripture and say the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We have to be saved up out of these lifestyles. How can we do that? Does the scripture tell us how? And actually it does. The scripture tells us what to do. Now in this book, uh, Compassion Without Compromise by Barr and Sitlow, I don't know how to pronounce that name, but uh, they identify key terms. And this is like more of a progression, if you can think of it this way. So you're going to take, it's like step by step. And then what they do is flip it around and go reverse, back down the stairway of sinful actions. So it starts with desire. That's what your heart loves and what your heart hates and what you're attracted to or repulsed from. Then orientation, that's a word we hear a lot in this area, in this era, sexual orientation. That would be a dominant tendency or drive, consistent attractions and repulsions that tend to dominate the mind. Then sexual identity, subjective sense of identity based on orientation. Who am I? This is a fairly modern cultural label, but it has to be dealt with by those coming out of lifestyle. And by the way, that's where you're going to find, you know, most recently that whole issue of gender dysphoria or transgenderism. They identify a certain way. So it's not physiological for them. They identify as male or female. We'll talk briefly about that at the end. And then after that, then clearly sexual behavior, actual actions taken based on the first three, including patterns of behavior homosexuals put out to attract others of the same sex. So that would be where you just know that your hair, hair, uh, hair cutting person or flight attendant or uh, wait staff or anybody you meet, you just know that they're gay. And they actually want you to know. They might say it, but they just are putting out signals. Uh, Etc. So that's that, including that, and then to the actual action of sexual, you know, acting out. So those are the four stages, uh, step by step. Now here's here's the thing. We believe no one has the power over their own heart. This would set us apart from pure free will people, like ultra Arminian type folks, where you can of your own free will just change who you are. That's just Pelagianism where uh, the past and Adam and all that has no effect on you. They just deny original sin and really say at any moment you can of your own free will choose X. Well, we don't think that's biblical. It's not scriptural. We actually think you don't have the power to change your own heart. Can someone read for us uh, Jeremiah 13, 23? Well, that's a gloomy verse. It's like, you know, think about our our culture. You can be whatever you want to be. Well, I guess not. I mean, when it comes to just the fundamental question, can I be good today? What's the answer? No. 
No. <laughs> I can't even do that. I can't even be good today. No, you can't. And actually, Romans 3 says there is no one good, no one who seeks God. We, we understand. The more you go on in Christian theology, the more you go on to study, you realize you just know this is true. And you know it's true of you. Romans 7, the very thing I hate, I do. It's like, why can't I stop doing the things I hate doing? Why not? And it's because we are a prisoner of the law of sin at work within our members. We're all like this. We're all in this issue. What a wretched man. Who will rescue me? Do you hear what Paul's saying in Romans 7? I need a rescuer. I need a savior. I need someone to come and save me. Amen. That's called everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You need a savior. You need a rescuer. And his name is Jesus. And you still need him. You still need him to save you. Even in sanctification, you need him to save you every day. Like it says in Psalm 50, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. And that's a sanctification verse. You're in trouble. You're struggling with sins. Call on Jesus and he'll deliver you. That's an ongoing calling. You don't just call in the name of the Lord when, right before you uh, or after you walk the aisle when they're playing just as I am. So I remember distinctly. I have the date written in my Bible when I called in the name of the Lord. It's like, well, I'm glad and I'm sure you did. I hope you did anyway. But you've been calling on him ever since if you're a genuine Christian. Every moment you're calling him, save me, save me, save me. And Paul's saying that, isn't he, in Romans 7. Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's going to rescue us. So that's what we're talking about. We cannot change. We can't take out the heart of stone and put it in the heart of flesh. So the homosexual cannot do that for himself or herself. The lesbian cannot change his or her own nature. But God can change it. One of the first things he does is make them aware that the change is necessary, that they cannot do it, but they have to have it done. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must, what? Be born again. It's an odd, one of the odd constructions grammatically. It's called a passive imperative. What's an imperative grammatically? What does that mean? An imperative. It's a command, something you need to do. But it's a passive imperative. What does that mean? Something must be done to you. That's what passive is, where you receive the action. So here's it. You must have something done to you. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? You think about that. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. You must have something happen to you that you can't do. Well, why does he tell him that? Because part of the salvation process is to realize that that's true and cry out for it and ask God for it. And if you're genuinely crying out for it, he'll do it. It's sovereign grace. So transformed, if the heart of stone has been removed and the heart of flesh is put in, that's going to lead inevitably to a changed life. Turn it around. If there's no fruit, there's no life. Every branch that bears no fruit is collected and burned in the fire. So there is certainly sanctification fruit that without which we can say there was no justification. That's the link between justification and sanctification. If you have been justified, your sins have been forgiven, what that means is you have a new nature, you're a new creation, you have new desires, and guess what? You're going to act on them. You're going to start talking differently. You're going to start thinking differently, living differently. Things are going to change. Without that, we can say there has been no justification. So we are looking at sanctification. We understand it's imperfect. That's the problem. It's imperfect work. But if there is literally no fruit, then there hasn't been any transformation. There's no justification. All right. So um, everything starts then with the renewing of the mind by the word of God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, of your mind. 
So let's work from the outside back in. Starts with sexual behavior. All right? Immediate repentance and change. You stop this sin pattern. Stop it. All right? Actual sexual acts immediately stop. Where the person's not come to Christ. They're still weighing it. They're still thinking about it. They've not been converted. All right? Outward presentation, habits, clothing choices, mannerisms, speech patterns. Habits, habits, habits. This is going to be a focus of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're going to start changing their habits. Now, if you're saying, well, how long does it take? But there's evidence right away that it's going on, and then it continues. So it's just like a dimmer switch. It goes brighter and brighter until full light of dawn. We're never going to reach it in this life. But there's just an ongoing change of patterns, of habits, of places you go, of clothing choices, of all of these things, little by little by little, even very rapidly, things are going to change. So if there's no change, hear me, if there's no changes, there's no justification. If there's some changes and it's going, etc., if you're on the outside looking in saying it's not fast enough, just pray, be patient, be a pastor, be a discipler. So that's where you get into the dimmer switch of rapidity. But there is a pressure on all of us, not just with this topic, but with all of us. Change your patterns, change your habits, change your activities. So it starts there. All right, then backward from there on the topic of homosexuality, sexual identity. Considering yourself a new way. How does the person answer the question, who am I? Old answer was, I'm a homosexual. The world says, yes, you have to just deal with that, accept it, etc. We're saying no. You're not going to answer the question that way anymore. So the transgender person is not going to have dysphoria anymore. They're going to say, I am a male. I am a female. It's what I was born. It's what God made me. And you're just, there's a new self-identity, a self-awareness. All right? So true identity. Now, here's the thing. That is true of all of us. And frankly, it's the essential self-conception of sanctification. You have to think of yourself a certain way. Someone read Romans 6.11. This is true of all of us. Romans 6.11. That's an amazing statement. Talk about your identity. I am a Christian. Or in this case, I am dead to sin. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is that true of you? Well, if you're born again, it's true. Do you think it's true? I bet you don't always think it's true. You're like, boy, I, didn't, I don't think I was dead to sin there, right there, <laughs> that moment. <laughs> when I did that or said that or acted in that way, that doesn't seem like I was dead to sin. No, but it's true. You are dead to sin. You're decisively dead. You died with Jesus once for all because you were united with him by, by... That's Romans 6, 1 through 10. Let's look at it. What should we say then? Should we go on sinning that grace may increase? May it never be. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might, let's put it this way, walk in newness of life. Paul's talking to all of the Roman Christians about this. And you get the sense that he's needing to persuade them about this. All of them need to walk in newness of life. Keep going in verse 5 and following. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. All right. For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with so that we will no longer be slaves to sin. That's Romans 6, 6, one of the most important verses on sanctification in the Bible. I'm going to circle back and talk about it in, in just a moment. 
because, verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's the wheelhouse of sanctification teaching. That's where it is. And it's true of all of us, but it's true also of the, homo the former homosexual who is now learning a new life in Christ and walking in newness of life. Then, uh, sexual orientation Dominant tendencies in the mind, strong attractions of the heart, thought life, preoccupation now changes. This is the ongoing work, the ministry of the Word of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the Bible studies that you go to. It's the daily quiet time. It's the books you're reading. It's the sermons you're hearing preaching. You know, that's why I get up to preach. I preach every week. The primary role that I have is to unfold the scripture to the end that the people who hear me will believe in God and, and be saved from sin. That's my goal. My goal is that you would be saved. And you're like, well, I'm already saved. Well, if you're born again, you have been saved, but also you are being saved and you're not done being saved. And it says in 1 Timothy 4, Timothy, keep working on your preaching, keep working on your public reading of scripture and your, and your teaching. In so doing, as you make progress, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's my job. So I get up, I'm going to get up, I'm going to give you a 22-chapter overview of the book of Revelation in 36 minutes and 30 seconds. That's how long it took me in the treehouse last night. And there is not a dead moment in those 36 minutes. By the way, don't freak out when you see the outline. The outline is like overview of Revelation and then seven themes. So we'll get to the seven themes probably around quarter till. And you'll be like, Forget Memorial Day weekend plans. We're going to be here a while. Don't worry about it. All right, you guys will be at peace. The rest of them are going to be all flustered and frustrated. Three quarters of the sermon is the overview of 22 chapters. One quarter is just a quick listing of seven themes. Okay, so I know what I'm doing. I'll get you done by about roughly noon. That's the goal. But all joking aside, my goal is I want to save myself. And I want to save you. And then if there's anybody who right now, right now, is dead in their transgressions and, and, and God might bring them, I'd like to save them too. And so I'm going to preach the gospel like I do every week. I want them to hear and cross over from death to life. But you guys, I want you to be saved too. I don't want you to drop off a year and a half from now like you don't, I don't know what happened to you. So we're all in this, friends. We're not done being saved. And so you have to consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have to think of yourself that way. It's true of all of us. And you have to orient yourself. You have to think it. Now, the gay, a gay person has to say, not, I'm not gay anymore. That's what I was. Now I am a Christian, and that in involved for me being um, a heterosexual male or female, whatever God made me to be. That's the way. It's, that, so mind control is, is the essence of sanctification. You've got to control your mind. Romans 8, 6, and 7. Someone read that for us. The mind of the unregenerate person is death, and it does not submit to God, God's law. But you, you're born again, and, and you not only uh, submit, you actually delight in God's law. Romans 7, Paul says, I delight in it. I can't do it. I want to. <laughs> when he tells me, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, oh, how I delight in that, and I yearn for the day. Right now, I'm going to just try to put sin to death and try to walk in holiness. 
but delight, okay? Ephesians 4, I'm not going to read through that, but there's so much of the thinking. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in their darkened thinking, their darkened understanding, and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That's all how you used to live, and you can't live like that anymore. Now you need to live a new life in the mind and then flowing from the mind and heart out into a holy life. So that's true of, a, of an ex-homosexual who has now been converted. So they have to put off the old self and put on the new self. And then finally, desires. Desi the strategy with desires, and that's we spent a lot of time talking about that, and I think it's a valid topic. What do I do with evil desires? The answer is kill them. You have to kill them. And that's why I'm going to go back to Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus. Step one. So who you were in Adam, your old identity in Adam, died the moment you came to Christ. In your union with Christ, it died decisively. It'll never, you'll never be that person again. You have a radically new identity in Jesus. That old self, Pelias Anthropos, is the old man, translated, old man, that old identity is dead forever. Decisively. You don't need to crucify the old man. If you're a Christian, that happened once for all, dead. Okay? Step two so that the body of sin might be rendered increasingly powerless. Now we come to the body of sin. That's the brain and the body, the muscles, the sex organs, the glands, the, the juices that flow, all of the biology of life that is so complex and woven together. That's your body of sin or mortal body. Now Paul calls it a body of sin. <laughs> what does that mean to you, the body of sin? physical body as they have the tendency to lead you to sin, right? Your appetites lead you to go across boundaries, to overeat, to overdrink, to oversleep, to violate sexual regulations. That's what the body is driving you to do. <clears throat> it's the moment you kneel down to pray and you're praying, your body's telling you to stop praying. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, what in the world? Give me a break. Body, go take a break, all right? For the next 45 minutes, I want to pray to Jesus. And my knees are telling me to stop. And my stomach is telling me to stop. And my wandering mind is telling me to stop. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a body of sin. The body as it leads you away from godliness. All right. <clears throat> the old self was crucified once for all so that that body of sin might be increasingly rendered powerless. Generally, little by little, put to death. Katargeo is the Greek word, it, just little by little. So this strategy we use is death by starvation. Little by little by little, those sinful desires die if you don't feed them. If you feed them, they'll flame up again. So don't be a fool. So same thing, internet pornography, anything like that, don't feed the desire and it will get weaker and weaker. Will it ever 100% go away? Not in this life. But it can be manageable. It can get to a manageable level so the alcoholic can actually say, I have not had any alcoholic drink in 19 years. And the temptation is pretty minimal. But I would be a fool to go to a bar or to a uh, uh, place where they sell alcohol uh, by the bottle. But I'd, be, I'd be foolish. Why would I do that? I'd be stupid. I could have immediate problems again. And I know that. So I'm always going to be vigilant in that area. That's just what we all have to do. But that's what the homosexual person has to do. So that third step, they're not acting like a slave to sin. They're living a new life. Does that make sense? Romans 6, 6 is the key. Let's keep going. Examples of conversations. This is very practical. All right. How can I have a conversation with, with various people in various topics or various settings? All right. Number one, how can I have a meaningful conversation about this issue without getting into an argument? 
How can I turn an argument into a meaningful conversation? All right, so again, as we said before, note the difference between arguing and making an argument. Help us again. What's the difference between having an argument and making an argument? Should lawyers make arguments concerning the innocence, let's say, of their client? Should they say, I don't know, I really don't have much to add. <laughs> How much am I paying you? <laughs> make a case. And it's like, it's almost like that's us with Jesus. It's like, you know, we're supposed to be making arguments. Should we Christians make arguments on the topic of homosexuality? Should we make arguments? Yes, we need to. You need to pay the price and make an argument. Make a biblical argument, you know, just do it. You're going to get shot at, but you need to make an argument. But we must not have an argument. And that just has to do with carnality, pride, right? Anger, tone, demeanor. Be humble, be gentle. Go back to 1 Peter 3.15 gentleness and respect. Treat them with respect as a human being. If they're getting heated up, back off. Back off. If they're not ready to have that kind of a conversation, be patient. Ask for, you know, the Lord for another time. You don't want to get them all heated up, all right? So five applications. Have the right mindset. Don't seek to win the argument, but seek to open a door by creative question asking. Well, what do you believe about this issue? Why do you believe that? Where do you get your information? Um, one person said, put a rock in their shoe. I like that. Put, put something mentally in their mind that they can't shake. They have a hard time shaking that off. And they, and they circle back a week later and they say, tell me more about that. That bothered me when you said that, but I, don't, I can't refute it. So tell me what, why you think that way. Put a rock in their shoe. Uh, speak your convictions clearly, especially tie your convictions into Scripture, which has converting power. This isn't just your opinion. This is something that God teaches. All right? Pay attention to the conversational context. Walk in wisdom. So where are you, the two of you? who are having this conversation. They said, don't yell in the library, okay? <laughs> what that means is the library has its own rules, different than other places, right? <clears throat> you can yell at the ballpark at certain times. If you're literally the only one yelling in the ballpark, that's weird, okay? But if there's thousands and thousands of others that are yelling, fans, because a home run just got hit, nobody will think that's weird, so that's the context. In the library, you don't ever yell, because it's just those are the rules. So are you at work? Are you in a Bible study and somebody raised the question? Um, you know, are you on the street? Where are you? And then discern who you're speaking to. Do they claim that they're gay? All right. Do they have a son or daughter? They're not gay, but their son or daughter has come out of the closet in the last year, and it's extremely painful for them. But they're starting to defend the behavior and all that. It's just who are you talking to and what are their views? It's not going to be cookie cutter, one size fits all. Um, <clears throat> control the thermostat. Uh, what is his emotional temperature? If he, if he or she starts getting hotter, then tone it down. Um, so your conversation should be gracious, seasoned with salt. And don't expect them to agree all the time or, you know, right away. Paul wrote many of his epistles from prison. Do you think he was aware that not everyone would agree? <laughs> he was aware more than we are. He knows not everyone's going to agree. All right. Question number two. And pray. God alone can change someone's heart. Question number two. My neighbors are a lesbian couple. We occasionally converse and have a cordial relationship, but I've never out and out told them that I think their lifestyle is sinful. Am I just being a coward? Or is it okay not to mention this and just try to be a good neighbor uh, to them? Many of you have told me that you're in exactly that situation. And my feeling is you're going to find yourself more and more in that situation. First of all, just be a good neighbor. So I've said before, be a human being. Be a good neighbor. Um, you know, offer hospitality. I would also say very early in the relationship, identify yourself as a Christ follower. Don't wait to do that. 
you don't necessarily have to talk about homosexuality, but just say, yeah, we're Christians, we're Christ followers. I like Christ follower, somebody who's following Christ, uh, et cetera. Say that really, really early in the relationship. And if you fail to do that, do soon rectify. Just say, I don't know if I've told you this, but the most important thing in my life is my faith in Christ. Just stick that flag in. But then be, uh, you know, be a neighbor. All right. When the time comes, don't be afraid to speak the truth. Most importantly, look for opportunities to share the gospel of Christ above all else. This alone has converting power, not God's law against homosexuality. So I, I might suggest use the law, but don't zero in on homosexuality. Just talk about covetousness, talk about idolatry, talk about how people put ultimate value on created things, and we all do that. I think more generally talk about it at that level. We're not afraid, but we're just talking about the general law and the application of the law that fits for all of us. But do share the gospel. And the gospel has converting power. Uh, when you share the gospel, make it personal. Tell your own story. You know, what Christ did in your life to rescue you from sin. Uh, if somehow things get heated, remind them that friends can disagree about important things and still be friends. They say that all the time. All right? But it's like when the shoe's on the other foot, they don't necessarily like it, you know? Um, it's almost like tolerance of everything except this. Um, but we just need to go ahead and say, hey, we can be friends together. You don't have to walk on eggshells. Be who you are. Um, become increasingly aware of what God may be doing in your friend's life. Ask God, Lord, would you, um, you use me for whatever you want in so-and-so's life? Do you want me to serve them in some way? Speak to them about some specific truth. As God open do opens doors, then walk through them. Just see ways you can serve them and bless them and help them. All right, question number three. I like this one. The bank where I work is celebrating Diversity Week. Oh, wonderful. Oh, joy. Um, the branch manager who I've been sharing the gospel with is engaged in a homosexual relationship and has encouraged, encouraged us all to put a rainbow flag magnet stating celebrate diversity on our office doors for the week. What should I do? All right. What, what, what would you do? Don't I just start there. Don't put up the magnet. Okay. Why? Topher, why not? I mean, that's, that's a rough moment there, but why do you not put up the magnet? Yeah, I mean, it, what they say is the flag represents a declaration of independence from the kingdom of God. Don't fly it. You know, imagine during the Cold War, you're flying a hammer and sickle. At, I mean, it's like, what? I mean, imagine if you did that in your neighborhood. What would people think back in like, you know, two years after Reagan got elected and you got a hammer and sickle on your, uh, on your mailbox? How would it go with your neighbors? I it just, I mean, it's, it's humorous. It's like, no, don't. Yeah. So don't just let's get, let's understand some things are just going to be unthinkable. I know you want to reach out. I know you want to be compassionate, but how are you going to recover from that? How do you then later say, by the way, don't be deceived if you're, I mean, how do you do that? So just don't fly the flag and resist uh, the urge to be drawn into a dead end debate. Don't explain why. Just say you'd rather not. I just would rather not uh, fly the flag and say, I just don't align with that particular cause. If someone forces you into further explanation, say, you know, I value our friendship. I respect your right to maintain your opinions. I ask you to extend me the same respect. Now, here's the thing. Jesus said, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What Jesus is saying is if somebody's, that he's talking about people there. The dogs and pigs are people, but they're exceptionally hostile people. See what I'm saying? Extremely angry. Like, remember uh, in Acts 19 when the pagans were chanting for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians? Is that a time for evangelism? Any thoughts on that? Hour into the riot, what do you think? I'm thinking, no, go home and pray. Get off the street. <laughs> That's exactly what Jesus says. Discern the rage level. 
And if they're like so filled with the juices of the rightness of their cause, it's just not a teachable moment. So I would just do whatever you can to get out of that conversation. It's just not going to be productive. So now I will say Paul did want to preach in the amphitheater, but that didn't make it right. <laughs> he was stopped by some non-Christian friends and say, Paul, can I just give you a word of advice? Don't go in there. They will kill you. <laughs> so it's like good advice. I do appreciate his zeal, though. Um, humble resistance is the key. And if you need to go to law, you don't want to have to do it. But it, we shouldn't be forced to celebrate things. By the way, this is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. You know, in the 19, mid-1930s, if you're standing and the brown shirts are going by and everybody's singing the, the horse vessel song and, and they've all got the Nazi salute and you're just standing watching, what do you think is going to happen to you? You would literally get thrown in the street and beat up no matter what your views were because you weren't celebrating Nazism. So you're like, wow, I mean, is that where we're heading? No, I hope not. But there is an aggressiveness to this homosexual movement and it takes courage. So we're just saying, look, um, you know, we're not flying the flag. Um, question four, our son has a dating relationship with another man and wants to bring him home for the holidays. I can't tell you how many people are in this situation. Uh, that sons are openly or daughters are openly living a lifestyle, want to come home for, the, home for Christmas and all that. The question on the part of the Christian parents and family members is, how do I maintain a loving relationship without compromising on the topic? That is not a, there are no easy answer to that. I think on the topic of should we go to the wedding, my, a co-worker is getting you know, married to his or her partner. Should I come? Don't go. Same thing, same thing with, the, with the flag. You can show support and love for them as a human being other ways. But weddings are celebrations of the union. That's what they are. Can you celebrate that union? And if you can't, then don't go to the wedding. So those are different things. Uh, all of these are practical. I, I literally just have one more minute. So just walk through this. These are really helpful, practical conversation things. You have it as a, let me talk for just a moment about transgenderism. And I've said this before, but, and there's stuff on the, at the, the whole second handout that you have is included part of your one handout. It goes into transgenderism, um, which has become very fashionable now. First of all, just understand the insanity involved in all of this where someone can look at their biology and just know very clearly that they're male or female and say, I identify as X. I think it would have been clearly a psychosis decades ago. Clearly a psychosis. Something is wrong with their, with their self-image. And so for me, the most helpful analogy has been anorexia nervosa. And we actually have had some non-church members, but they're Christians who brought their daughter recently to have her treated for that exact, you know, malady. And it seems like in our society, everybody knows you don't feed that, uh, that delusion. You know, the individual thinks he or she is too heavy when they're actually they have a normal BMI and heading down. You know where it ends. If it's not healed, what's going to happen to that person? They're going to die. Their body systems are going to shut down. They're going to starve themselves to death. And everybody knows it, but nobody gathers around that person and celebrates their, their strange identity. They're pleading with them with tears coming down their face to think of themselves rightly and properly and have a healthy relationship with food. Everybody knows that. But they don't do that when it comes to this because it's like the logical next step of the gay movement in our country. The problem is that it has backlash. 
Because at this point then you're like, like I said to you a few weeks ago, these liberal feminist colleges can no longer define what a woman is and therefore feminist studies doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah, like Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. How in the world they're gonna figure that one out, I don't know. We need to have our sanity. And though it may cause you trouble, you need to refer to people in a healthy manner. Now their name is their name, but their identity is their identity. Now you can debate if, if he wants to be called Stephanie uh, and all that. It, it's just, I don't know what, what you do about that. All I'm saying is you don't feed their delusion, but you try to get them to think in a healthy way, all right? I'm not actually gonna open it up for questions. Uh, I would love Q&A, but there's just so many things that we could talk about and I'm already over. I'm happy to talk to all of you after the uh, worship service, any that you'd like. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had today to study. There's too many things uh, to study. Um, so many things that we want to learn, but just fundamentally give us courage to stand up in an increasingly hostile world, a world that does not accept our worldview. Help us to stand up and be courageous and trust in the scriptures. Help us to understand the mighty saving work that the Holy Spirit does through the blood of Christ and saving sinners. Such were some of you. What a great, great teaching. Help us to be bold. Help us to be loving. Give us opportunities to speak to people who need to hear this saving message. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.